Welcome to the Weekend Sportscast, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Collection. And as always, we'll start uh, this Weekend Sportscast with thank you to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. Our friend and colleague Marshall Pruitt is on route to Indianapolis. God knows why. I'm sure you could probably work that one out. So once again, on this odyssey of sports car viewing. Uh, that we're undergoing over the next what feels like several months but it's actually just three weeks uh, sitting here in Barcelona, the outskirts of Barcelona in our Airbnb kitchen with my friend and colleague Stephen Kilby Evening Stephen. Good evening Graham Well we're here in Barcelona for the uh, prologue test ahead of the start of the season for the European Le Mans series but uh, recording this show in the wake of a pretty extraordinary weekend last weekend of sports car action, uh, principally with the FI World Endurance Championship's first European round of the season, uh, Portimao, and of course the Inter-Imsa WeatherTech Sports Car Championship street race at Long Beach, both of which had no shortage of action, no shortage of drama. Trying to work out, by the way, today, Stephen, how many consecutive days of watching sports cars go round and round a track in Southern Europe is this? Seven? Oh, it's it's yeah, it's probably we had the world's worst now. travel day on Monday. Yeah, we had, yeah, it was yeah. the world's worst travel day yes, on Monday, uh, involving lost property, uh, punctured tyres, uh, wrongly issued tickets, annoyance, and not enough beer, and nowhere near enough beer. Um, but I think it was four days, three or four days for Portimao. We're now yep. on day how many? Three. Day three, yeah, three, and there's another four to come. Yeah. And then we're home for less than a day, and then we go to Spa for the another most boring motorway. Yeah, and Fair that's enough. another three or four days. As always for the weekend sports cars, we power this show with the fuel of Lister questions. And thanks to the lightning fast reactions of Daniel Sellersgill, um, if there is a superhero in terms of podcast question compilation, then the combination of Daredevil and The Flash is surely Daniel Sellersgill. Definitely. I sort of see him as a kind of Thor. But um, more muscly, if anything. Uh, I meant Thor as in, you know, kind of defrosting himself. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. <laughs> but uh, thanks again. Uh, Bumper Bundle, as always. This is, of course, the podcast in sports car racing where when we ask the questions, we actually get them. And there are no shortage of those. We're going to do, in traditional vein, uh, potter through the main categories, um, some of which, particularly when we get into questions around what's actually been said about GT3, uh, Stephen can answer those because he was in the room when it was said, I wasn't. Um, and you're going to hear more than once Graham's special hashtag boys and girls. And do we know what Graham's special hashtag is? It's hashtag CTFL. If you're going to comment on the internet about something that's been written and tweeted out, Click the insert other word link and actually read what's been said. Don't use 280 characters, boys and girls, because what does that make? It makes for idiots, it's what that makes. Let's crack on through. What's first then, and who's asking? It's Marcel Toyota 7 who that, comes that, that, in. That's really fortunate to have that surname, isn't it? It, it is Sports a Club. really interesting surname considering he seems to uh, enjoy the WEC. He says, uh, Can we please address the 
utter diabolical tinfoil business about fans and favoritism. It doesn't say business, does it? No, it doesn't say business, mm. yeah. From fans and favoritism towards Toyota. People seem to think these new cars can just rock up and win. That Toyota has three years more knowledge and Evo twice. Right, okay, I think I know where you're coming from here. This is the kind of either it's so unfair Toyota are miles ahead or it's clearly fixed against the insert name of someone else's favourite uh, team or car. Here's the thing, boys and girls. Let's explain how Hypercar works as opposed to how LMP1 used to work. LMP1, pretty open technical rule book. By the way, you will hear us powered this evening just by... Uh, our sponsors from Cooper Tires, Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsport.com, but also by chocolate M&Ms and coffee because it's quite late. Um, so apologies if you hear, as you inevitably can now, uh, the M&Ms being hammered. Um, LMP1 was basically a pretty open technical rule book, but the cars were defined by an eff- effectively a geometric box. The dimensions of the car were defined by that. Hypercar is very different. With hypercar, and this is important, you are defined by a number of different values. It's lift, it's drag, it's the power, it's the weight of the car. How you get there is entirely up to you. So the key point here is you make the the, the determination, the decision about how you reach those values. You've then, the challenge is, with the drivers that you select and the team that you select, both on the pit wall, in the garage, back at base, etc., through sim, is how close you can get to the technical peak performance that those values offer for you. Now, any computer will tell you that if you put the same values in, you can, should, get the same values out. And the key here is, right now, and Marcel is absolutely correct, by dint of the fact that they've had the experience they've had uh, in sports car racing, they know the rule book, they know the way that this works, they know where the risks are, and by dint as well of the fact that they've now gone through two evolutions and two seasons with the GRO10, the Groot, then Toyota are simply closer to the maximum potential over a single lap, very often, and over a stint and over a race distance than their main contenders. There is absolutely nothing unfair going on here. This is not, fundamentally not, a balance of performance that is favouring one uh, car over the other, one factory over the other. Certainly not in LMH. You know, there is a debate potentially to be had about whether or not we, we need and may see a change eventually in the platform balance of performance. But nobody, I mean nobody at Ferrari, and we've spoken to them on and off the record in some length, they've been very open with us, haven't they, over Mm. uh, recent uh, days and weeks. Nobody is even beginning to edge towards the possibility of a maybe, even off the record and against the rules, of moaning about BOP. They know the game is, we've got to up our game, we've got to do better, we've got to have fewer failures on pit wall, fewer failures on pit lane, fewer failures in the cockpit. Fewer failures, as we saw at Portimao, uh, with things like the braking system. When they've got those nailed, and it's coming quite quickly, then we're going to see closeness of competition. But to expect somebody with a brand new product out of the box to go head-to-head within tenths of a second over six or eight or ten or twelve or twenty-four hours to Toyota at the moment, that would be a stretch. 
the fact that they are so close and have halved the gap in one race, that I think is pretty extraordinary. I do expect Ferrari to probably get closest quickest, but there were certainly signs throughout the field that people are beginning to get their head around the, the problem, around the, the challenge of, uh, of closing the gap to Toyota. And the thing they've got to do more than anything else is not cock it up, is the straight and honest answer. You know, then we can get into whether or not there is a, um, you know, a performance disparity that in some ways built into the rules. Anybody that's making that determination now, here's the thing, I won't often be this blunt, you're just wrong. It's as simple as that. There is no unfairness, absolutely none. And I was saying to a broadcast colleague, Ant Davidson, both on and off the broadcast, we were putting that comparison together about, look at LMP2. They're the same car. You know, it is at the moment Formula Orica. It's the same tyres. It's the same drivetrain. Um, the only differences are the team running those cars and the drivers aboard those cars. And yet, and yet, those cars, um, with the same rules that apply, regularly finish laps apart. Hmm. What's the difference? It's the same basic problem. You're, you're basically looking for quality. If what you want, and I know you don't because we have this question repeatedly, is for the competition to be dumbed back to the weakest possible level, then you know that's a different set of rules than what we've got at the moment, which is saying... Here's the values that give you the maximum possible performance within this rule set. Now go and chase the performance that goes to those rules. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. I what think else so. we got? Uh, Gustavo Bamba. Hey! Is, first of all, it was a fantastic race weekend in Portimao. What I saw in Loco was a very well-developed Toyota and good signs from Ferrari, Cadillac and Peugeot for the future. Regarding Porsche, I think the car looks a little bit odd on track. Could it be the aero? Um, I think... It's an interesting one. First and foremost, I should say, delighted to meet you and your utterly charming family uh, at Portimao, uh, Gustavo. And I bet your little boy has not yet stopped telling his friends and anybody else he cares to mention about his very first, and I hope not his last, seat in a GTE Ferrari that we arranged for him on uh, race morning around the, uh, the autograph session. Um, I think the Porsche is a, it's the kind of car we're not used to it yet. It does look a bit long. Mm. Um, it does, doesn't yet look to be that wieldly, of course. The sister car took a win in, how can we put this, dramatic circumstances at Long Beach. Matthew Jaminet doing a fantastic job of holding off Ricky Taylor. I'm sure there'll be questions about that later, so we won't go too much into that. Again, Porsche are closing the gap, but they're closing the gap from further back than Ferrari are in pure performance terms. The 963 is clearly a very capable car, but doesn't yet look the whole picture. It doesn't yet look the whole package, rather. I think there's a bit of hashtag wait and see. I think there is. They're clearly going to get there quicker in GTP than they are in WEC, but then in GTP... Everybody's sort of starting from the same starting point, which is zero. Yes, some of those teams and some of those manufacturers were in DPI previously, but this is a whole new world. In WEC, the difference is Toyota are there carrying that flaming torch and a record in hypercar, let alone in P1 before them, 
um, that says we've already won two Le Mans and uh, two World Championships with this car. I think it's a wholly different level of competition uh, on that level alone. Um, no doubt whatsoever, I think you mentioned it in the aftermath of the race, Stephen, is take out the Toyotas and then give the level playing field to everybody bar Glickenhaus and to a certain extent Peugeot. And actually that race was really close. Mm. If you take out the Toyotas behind, we had a real battle. Mm. Now that does bode well because if the, the rate of progress for those teams is steady throughout and they're closing that gap and closing that gap, then they will bring that level of competition in depth up further up the field as, th- as time goes on. And we're just going to look forward to that one. Hmm. I think from the conversations that we've had with people from Toyota throughout the last couple of race meetings, it's clear they expect to be reeled in. Oh, yeah. They, no. they're, they're, they're waiting for it. Yeah, Every I mean, conversation you have, it's they're, they're watching them come over the horizon and close that gap. What they've done over the last couple of seasons is they've started from... The, the bluntly the booking Bronco that was the original car there's something that now looks if not nailed then significantly closer to it and it's <clears throat> it's an amazing example of what a committed team with a reasonable resource behind them remember Toyota never even in the, the days of the TSO 50 never spent anything other than a fraction of what Audi and Porsche spent on their programmes but yet they did come out with some amazing cars and some amazing results. I think, you know, it does go to show with the, the, the teams that are coming, and there are very few weak links in that field below them. You know, you're talking about Ganassi, you're talking about Penske, you're talking about Ferrari, for God's sake. They are not going to be happy with second best. And they're, they're, they're fighting hard. And they've got, you know, hard... Uh, if you like, balance sheets and personalities behind those aspirations. I don't expect it's going to be too much longer before we start to see strides being taken in competitive terms. You know, not least, you know, mistakes are not going to be forgiven uh, very easily by some of the uh, the personalities and the corporate entities that are involved here. We did see some really encouraging signs. We did see some real speed from Ferrari before that car hit problems. We saw iron cloud reliability from Cadillac. We saw better speed and reliability uh, from at least one of the Porsches. And Peugeot actually quietly had a significantly better race than I think most people expected in the wake of what was, by all accounts, not a very successful insurance test mm. with the new gear shift system. That gear shift system didn't let them down for the first time. Mm. Which is really encouraging. Uh, so we go to Nacho Mac next. Okay. Um, it says, despite lacking outright pace, Penske Porsche managed to win at Long Beach and a podium at Portimao. Are they going to be contending for podiums at every race moving forward, or was this past weekend's performance more about luck than their well, strategy? I think you're in a better position to answer that. When I watched it, uh, you were in a position whilst we were wrapping up the broadcast to be able to go and talk to some of the personalities involved in that effort. And the WEC, at least, as far as GTP is concerned, I think my overriding comment is this they should and I think will be closer to at the moment the class leading pace than they would expect to be in WC that's simply as we said earlier in the show uh, because the starting point the level playing field 
is level for all four of those teams, in, uh, four or five of those teams and four manufacturers. But as for WEC, what do the guys have to say? Yeah, so I spoke to Kevin Estra after the race. Someone's got to. Uh, yeah, well, uh, lovely guy. And he he's encouraged. That's, that's The main thing is they're all pleased that it's going in the right direction. It's going in the right direction quickly. Um, he talked to me about the difference between Sebring and Portimao and how mm-hmm. massive that was and how downbeat the whole team was after Sebring because they finished like four laps off the lead, I think it was. Um, and to go from an eight-hour race where you finish four laps off the lead to a six-hour race where you finish off just off the lead lap um, is you know, a, a big stride forward. But he's also, at the same time, very keen when talking to the media, I think, in particular, to stress that they've still got quite a long way to go with this car. Mm-hmm. For them, the biggest challenge so far has been tyre wear. That car is eating its tyres in a completely different way to the Cadillac, which seems to be, out of the two LNDH cars, just the opposite end of the scale and actually one of the better tyres on, on tyre wear. Um, at a place like Portimao, when it was relatively hot and at a circuit that's as hard on tyres as that, it played a big factor. At Sebring, the rears were all over the place and we saw the drivers struggling with that. At Portimao, it wasn't the same. They definitely got a handle on that. So I should remind uh, listeners as well, Portimao relatively recently uh, resurfaced, relatively recently. Used to be, I mean, remember the days when we started to go there for European Le Mans series a decade or so ago. Really bumpy, not anymore. It's not billiard table smooth, but it, you know, it is a significantly more predictable racing surface, and that's one of the reasons why so many of the, the hypercar teams chose it as one of their testing venues. Mm. And of course, Cadillac will be not next weekend, but after next weekend at Spa. Another story. Uh, if you're keen to catch up with what Cadillac are up to in the next few weeks, have a look at what Stephen wrote um, during Portimao week about both Cadillac and, for that matter. Kevin Estra's comments as well, and those from Ferrari. Uh, lots of really good insight in terms of what's going on below the world where Martin Haven and David Snow scream into microphones. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's a work in progress, but it's hard work in progress, and it's coming really quite quickly. Mm. Not that long since we were across in Sebring, and it just looked a different field, didn't it? It did look a different field, um, and. From Porsche's perspective, they took a bit of pride, I think, in the weekend in beating Cadillac because that was almost their yardstick, being the only other manufacturer running an MDH car in, in WC. And so they're pleased with that. They're obviously pleased with the podium, but they know that had the 51 Ferrari not had its braking issues, had the 7 Toyota not had to come in for that rear end change, it it probably wouldn't have been a podium for them. They were looking at battling for fourth or fifth. But you've got to finish. Yeah. You've got to finish. And ultimately, you know, we're going, storming towards the Le Mans 24 hours. That is a whole different level of, you know, pain for teams looking to iron out these tiny little niggles that sometimes can become bigger problems. And for, and for, for Porsche and Cadillac, the Le Mans 24 hours compared to the Rolex 24 hours, as a, just in circuit terms, Yeah. The Rolex 24 hours is not as hard on a car right. as the Le Mans 24 right. hours. It's nowhere near. And the other thing is, we don't yet know how the various solutions that these teams have come to in terms of the way the cars are packaged for aerodynamics, for top speed, etc. 
how the stresses and strains of that place is on the machinery is going to impact on them at Le Mans. Long, long, full throttle straights, heavy, heavy braking zones. And it, it's just, it traditionally hasn't it been a bit like Sebring, just a circuit that doesn't quit, but in a very, very different way. Long periods of full throttle um, and placing the machinery under, you know, real um, stress and strain. And that's before we add in the two other factors, one of which is running into darkness and the extremes of temperature that come with that. And by the way, linked in with that is the weather. We don't know what the weather's going to be like for the Centurion Le Mans. I hope it sunshines. I hope we have an absolutely fabulous week and I hope everybody um, you know, isn't having to run for cover with, with bad weather. You've said that now, it's over. I know. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, weather inevitably will play a part, whether it's really hot or whether or not we do get wet weather at some periods. Again, these are challenges that we've not yet seen with these cars. And, yeah, we have had hot weather at, um, at Sebring, but, you know, June in um, central France, just it just punishes you. You know, we have, you know, you and I have both been there for races where the temperature's been, you know, grazing into the 90s. Mm. And you'll see, effectively, things start to break, things start to melt, mm. you know, including, you know, portions of the track from time to time. So we don't yet know what we're going to see for the remainder of this season. And we damn well don't, know, don't yet know what we're yet going to see at Le Mans. And I know there's a question or two about the dramas that affected one of the Toyotas. Would it be the first time that's happened to Toyota, remember? But was it, which year was it with the... 2014. The, was it not the data? It was the data logger, wasn't it? It was the data logger that, that uh, the circuitry around that caught fire in 2014. When Toyota were convincingly leading the race with that car. They're out in the spot. Mm. <clears throat> it's those kind of system failures that, yes, it's their responsibility to fit it to the car, that can come and bite them. It's now happened at Portimao. Could it happen again? Yeah, it could. And by the way, before we, lest we forget, remarkable turnaround to change the rear corner of that uh, car in those circumstances in what was it, 11 minutes uh, by Toyota Kazoo Racing, and then salvage at least some points from a pretty much a disaster. Um, but we'll wait until we get the question on that. Well, I was going to say that later. leads us neatly into it because it is the next question, which is from um, from Nathan, who says, uh, can we talk about the Toyota versus Peugeot and the sense of failure no, situation no, in the six hour? Oh, What's the feeling about it? And the fact that Toyota had to pit for a change of the corner while Peugeot didn't have to. Uh, well, first and foremost, we don't have <coughs> full details of exactly what went on. My understanding is that... Uh, the feeling was that they'd seen enough data from the Peugeot when the failure, or whether or not it was a full or partial failure happened. They hadn't seen enough data to be confident of what the, um, the data was going to show for the Toyota. At least that's the story we've been told. Look, the way these things happen, do I think everybody would have shaken hands, gone away and not talked about anything to do with what was a moment of real drama and controversy? course not you think Toyota are going to walk away from that without uh, wanting a bit of a bit of a kind of a student inquiry almost literally into what went wrong what can they Toyota and what can the powers that be do 
to minimize the chance of that happening again. You can be guaranteed that that's exactly what they spent a lot of time in the aftermath of that race and will continue to do so um, going through. I think you can also say if the issue was with the kit that was attached to the car by the rule makers, they don't want this to happen. You know, they don't want this to happen. And again, this is kit that, you know, some of it will be based on proprietary um, bits and pieces, but they've not been fitted to these cars before this season in the way that they are being now. And they're going to find things out about that too. That's part of this journey. Uh, I hope we get openness about what actually went wrong and a process that's been followed to, um, you know, try to address any problems moving forward. I hope we do. It is an area that, you know, our friends at the ACO and the FIA, to be blunt, at times have been, you can be sure that they did uh, look into and will still be looking into what happened, what actually happened, what the root cause of that was and what the potential uh, factors that can be put in place to, to ensure as best you possibly can that it's not going to happen again. This is a process. All of this is a process. Everybody's learning. And is it embarrassing? Yes. Is it you know, awful for all concerned on the competitive side? Yes. Does it mean that the championship is over for the seven card? No. Does it mean it's significantly more difficult? Yes, it most certainly does. But we're, we're already seeing, by the way, a kind of parallel thing with another technology that we've got access to is the emotion that's coming into this now. We heard in-car from the Toyota team. We also heard vividly in-car with the Ferrari team. And boy, isn't there a bit of soap opera um, beginning to emerge there. That, I think, is going to be a story that runs and runs. That there's competition between these teams. There's competition within these teams as well. And that's going to be interesting to see how uh, we get the discipline coming forward that's going to be necessary to carry these teams forward together as a unit, two-car unit, and not as a single crew or a single driver. Mm. Your friends at WCTV, don't they do a remarkable job of knitting together those team radios and the broadcast? Uh, it's, well, it's, that's, that's, uh, that's our new addition, Jason Swells, who um, grabs the, uh, the in-car radio and, and is doling those out to us as quickly as we possibly can get them to you. And love it. You know, it's a big step forward in terms of the service we're getting on that front this year. And to be able to give you just a little bit more colour behind those in-car and on-track dramas, I think just adds layers to it. It gives, us, it gives us themes we can bring to you on the broadcast. It gives you questions you can go and ask the guys afterwards, knowing what's been said and the context in which it's been said. And for me, it's a bit like the Audi documentaries from, you know, from what, nearly a decade ago, would you believe now? More than a decade ago. Abs absolutely. And, you know, getting to the stage where we understood far better what the role of the race engineer was. All of a sudden now, uh, what we're getting is the dynamic between the race driver in the car and in the case of the, uh, the Ferraris uh, on the broadcast day with Justin Taylor, ex-Audi, um, uh, race engineer himself uh, how could we put it um, doling out the advice I think it's fair to say in particular James Collado where he was dealing with a pretty pumped up James Collado um, getting to the stage where he was pulling away from that conflict but then basically saying if it doesn't get done if it doesn't get better we're going to be coming back to you 
Um, and that for me was that's the kind of drama I want to hear a bit more of. I want to hear that emotion. I'm emotional about sports. And hearing Pierre Greedy getting told to kind of calm it down a little bit when the Absolutely. break just had failed. Yes, was, was really interesting. Yeah, because again, well. I can see it from Alessandro's point of view. They are under pressure. This is Ferrari. Okay, you and I, I think we're not absolutely shocked, but surprised at the scope and scale of the the shift of interest that's coming just because of that brand. I can't imagine what that's like. The pressure that begins to come to bear on you as being the almost literal flag carrier for that brand. And we're not yet at the stage where their position is going to be under pressure, but you could be absolutely assured they want to secure their position within that team. And unfortunately, sometimes that means your position, perhaps at the expense of a colleague. Mm. That, just a flavour there that that might be a possibility moving forward. Mm. But you know, a great job, by the way, by the Ferrari team, and in particular, uh, Giovinazzi and Pierre Guidi, uh, to bring Superb the car drives. home. However, I would question why that car, without mm. a functioning brake on one corner, did not receive a mechanical um, flag. I asked that question and, and Ferrari just shrugged it off and we're like, well, you know, yeah. we, just, we just were concentrating on getting it at home. Well, we're already it, thinking about the black and orange flag it's, situation. It's not like the gearbox issue that, that, that again, oddly enough, the 51 crew drove around to secure the championship at Bahrain GTE Pro last year. You know, unless that thing was going to explode all over the track and leave debris everywhere, which mercifully it didn't, that's not a safety issue. This car was off track more than once at pace because he couldn't get the start car stopped. I would question whether or not the decision to allow that car to continue in that condition was the correct decision. And it was something that was being noticed by other drivers, as we heard from another team radio, Alex Lynn, who yep. had like driving behind it saying there's so much stuff getting kicked yep. up from the brake dust yep. that it's, you know, maybe a safety concern. Interesting. Okay. Let's go to Safe Phil, shall we? Um, He's asking about the, the 93 at the start of the race, the yeah. 93 Peugeot, the fact that it had to start a lap down because okay. it had that um, steering rack change, didn't it, before the race. Um, he's asking, should the re rule be reconsidered because it seems nonsensical to hold a car for an additional lap at the start of the I, race? I, I tend to agree, <laughs> I have to say. It always has struck me as being a big penalty. I guess the reasoning behind it, if I were to dig, it, dig deeper than I ever have with this, is to say... What you don't want is to give teams the opportunity to use that opportunity as a strategic tool. What this does, it absolutely guarantees that if you dive for the pits uh, before the race start, or if you can't get out because you're making an adjustment or second-guessing on tyres or something, that, you, that needs to be a problem. It needs not to be a choice. Okay? What you're doing here is preventing the option for a team in any circumstances to believe that they can draw an advantage from going to the grid later than anybody else. Mm. That's what you're doing. It's not we're punishing you overly for, a, for an issue. It's a guarantee that you don't make that elective. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like the crippling punishment for doing uh, pit work on the, in the fast lane during... Yeah, yeah. That a thousand one, euros. Another one that I don't understand was that that was... Uh, uh, qualifying with Prema in LMP2 took pole with Mirko Bottolotti by a thousandth of a second over Vector Sport who had a fantastic uh, run in the uh, lead up to the race before 
um, throttled by wire, wasn't it? Problems that, that um, delayed them, but were given a financial penalty rather than, to be blunt, what I think they and everybody else expected, which was to lose their pole position. Um, working on the car in the fast lane as the session started. Um, that I, I will admit, and if our uh, race stewards are listening in, I think you made a mistake, guys. I think that should have been penalised. Uh, and I hope that's not seen as a precedent moving forward. Well, yeah, it wouldn't be fun, would it, other than you've got a queue at the end of the pit lane under red, and there's just this fleet of mechanics working with cars. It's only costing a thousand pounds. Well, number you one, just number on one it's, it, it's impeding t- cars behind it. <clears throat> number yeah. two is it's dangerous. You know, it's it's not a working area, and not there were basically three things that you could argue were uh, at play here. One is they absolutely did. Um, work to take parts off that car, the rear clip off that car in the fast lane. They then realised they couldn't, shouldn't, then pulled it backwards um, into the working area of another team, the, the middle area. That again is against the rules. And the third thing was they then sent the car, realising the problem couldn't be solved there. Um, the car clearly not in a competitive form, whether or not it was in a safe form, we don't know, to come back around um, to its own working area, which arguably you could say was an unsafe release. So, you know, there are three things there that needed to be um, to be uh, considered. I have absolutely no idea how they came out of the steward's office with a fine and not having lost pole position. Mm. I don't know. I think that was a mistake. I think that is a precedent that I hope they don't regret. Mm. Um, next is the fall guy, um, Kevin Frederico. He says, hey, hey, Gigi. What do you feel is the reason for the lack of attendance at Portimao? Was it too expensive for the locals or being in the south of Portugal, which is mostly inhabited by non-Portuguese per capita, which have displaced majority of the natives that have no interest in motorsports? Uh, I think the answer is I don't think we should be disappointed. My my understanding is the official attendance was handed this during the race was 27,500. For once, I actually believe it. Uh, Those people who've been with us on the week in sports cars for from the beginning will know I have a massive sense of humour failure with um, venues that habitually just frankly lie about attendance. Um, the rumour is they're still counting the attendance figure for the 2015 one during championship <laughs> round to Silverstone. It's so big. It's so big. Um, but I just think it's it's dishonest. It's a straight answer. And I, I think it's it's a nonsense because all you end up doing the following year is well, we can't say so we got fewer, can we? Um, but from what I understand about um, the, certainly I was on pit lane for the autograph session. It was very full, um, and lots of very happy people and happily very happy families as well. Uh, plenty of people in the grandstand throughout, and that is a barn. That grandstand is huge. Some concerns about maybe some of the stewarding and long queues to get into grandstands, people queuing in pretty extreme heat. Um, but I think that's a good start. If you don't know where um, the Portimao circuit is, it's not close to a major city. It's, it's not really close to anything. No, it's well, it's it's about an hour from Faro Airport. It's about, as we found out, um, <laughs> to our peril. <laughs> yes, it's um, it's a technically two and a half hours um, from Lisbon Airport, or if you've had a puncture in your hire car. And you've just, 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 just had to go and get another one and you're going to miss your flights about an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, Portuguese police. 
Um, but it's not a simple commute to get there. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, Gustavo Bumba, we, we referred to earlier, told me he had a six-hour drive to get home um, with his family after that. That's no small commitment with a young family. So I don't think they should be in any way upset about that. I think should be quite encouraged. It will go north of this. It's now the challenge of everybody involved in the FI World Endurance Championship to measure success. You know, next time the, the, the championship comes, should it come back to Portimao, and we'll get into calendar matters later, to see that 27,500 figure grow. Mm. You know, I, don't think, I don't think this is a contest between venues. You know, you're always going to get a much bigger crowd at the Le Mans 24 Hours or at Fuji, you know, or a uh, spa, or for that matter, Silverstone, if we go back there, then you're going to get in Bahrain or Qatar. But there's different reasons for being there. So as far as uh, we're concerned on, on this one, uh, Kevin, I think the answer is, don't think it was a bad crowd at all. You know, it was a great atmosphere, great vibe, lots of... Um, happy faces to the paddock, lots of people astonished to be getting the kind of um, access that, you know, any of us that have been to major sports car races know is de rigueur, but those that perhaps are coming because Ferrari are there or because it's certainly a famous driver is now aboard the FIWC, they were amazed by it. I, I spoke to a couple of people during the weekend and they simply couldn't believe the access they were getting in that paddock, in that pit lane, and across the race meeting. Uh, Lawrence Quee says, during the first two hours of the race, you reported a lot about track limits and violations and the potential for penalties. But in the last two hours, they were barely mentioned. Did you just get tired of talking about them? Were the stewards tired of reporting them or were there just less violations? I think it's a mixture of all three, but in particular, I think it was the latter that it just got to the stage where I think the other thing is remember when a race is settling in you know you will get to the stage where it does develop its own rhythm it becomes a little less frenetic there certainly were violations towards the end of the race and uh, there was one point at which I seem to recall we got a message on um, the screens that said that the, uh, the there was a system failure and you wouldn't see track limit violations on the Discord channel anymore. So that certainly was the case during the race. But did things get better? Yes, they did. Do I get bored with talking about it? No, I don't. It's the rules. You know, it's, it's, you can't decide that, you know, we like that rule, we don't like that rule, so we won't obey that one. You know, if, if ever you get the privilege of being in a driver's briefing, and lots of interesting things come out of those driver's briefings, you know, you've been in one of them, uh, certainly before now, Stephen, it would be fair to say that Eduardo Freitas could not be clearer about what he expects in that regard. No. And With a PowerPoint presentation. Indeed, and pointing to certain places and showing them, um, not number one, where the sensors are, number two, um, what he regards as being uh, you know, an offence and what he regards as being on, just on the right side. It's really clear. I'm not in one of these cars on the extremes of grip so I'm not going to point the finger of criticism, but I'm certainly not going to pretend that the guys don't go into the race uh, understanding exactly what the limits are and exactly what the punishments are. I think, by the way, that change we now see, which is that we get the warnings um, more clearly expressed on our timing screens, has helped us enormously. We are making progress in all sorts of ways to help you, 
the listening and viewing public to understand a bit more exactly what's behind those decisions. But I think there's still work we can do. Let's talk about LMGT3. We've got questions. Ryan Terpstra, Lance Schneider, Gustavo Bamba, Right Turn Lover, Daniel Summerskill have all asked questions about uh, LMGT3. This is the point at which I will, as I did at the start of the show, um, start this with please, 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 if you are going to express an opinion on the, the news story of the day, and Steve will explain what that is in a moment, please take the time to read what was actually said. Now, we're going to be able to help you that in two ways. One is, there is a story on Daily Sports Car that you brought pretty quickly after the race meeting. Uh, and first out, the, the traps on that one. Well done, Stephen. Uh, that talked about uh, it's a media briefing with yourself and the other senior correspondents that eff- effectively the regular FIWC press pack with Frederick Nurkia, the uh, CEO of LMEM, who organised the WC to explain as best he could what the most favoured options are at the moment to move forward. It is not as simple as some people seem to have drawn from the very limited words you're allowed on a tweet. It is not. You're only going to get two cars each and you're only going to get two cars if you've got a hypercar programme. That's not it. I would suggest that if you, you do want to voice an opinion, go back and look at Stephen's piece pretty easy to find from the beginning of this week and look in particular at paragraph two where Stephen is very clear about what Frederick said and what more particularly what he didn't say and the other proviso is all of this is subject to further discussion with the FI Insurance Commission where changes can and do get made and then um, to be signed off by the World Motorsport Council and we'll wait and see whether or not we actually hear the eventual outcome of that potentially as early as the Le Mans 24 hours but Stephen tell us a bit what Fred did say in particular and I'll, I'll maybe prompt you with a couple of the questions uh, on the basis of what he didn't say okay so yeah I think the first thing to say is that he was very clear on multiple occasions that none of this is set in stone yet it's, this before is we go not any further. the rule book yes yeah, it's not the rule book yet um, but the, as you say Graham the target is Le Mans for this for the announcement so the discussion was had about the class structure in the WEC. The moment we have three classes, the hypercar class is big and it's getting bigger. And next year, when we have the additional manufacturers in, the class is going to grow to the point where it appears LMP2 is going to get the chop because you're going to go back to... There's no space. Yeah. There's no yeah. space, really. Yeah. It's... Yeah. it's, it's I'll, There's I'll no space, and the majority of the teams in LMP2 are going into hypercar anyway. Well, at the moment, we have 11 full-season <laughs> LMP2 cars. Forget for a moment Hertz Team Joe, they'll be, uh, we hope, I think it's tomorrow, as we record this, they'll actually get the car handed over at Vysak for its first rollout, and the 38 car will replace the 48 LMP2 car we've seen so far. So of those 11 cars that are full-season entries... Eight of the cars slash teams will next year have a hand in a hypercar programme. That leaves only three, the two United Autosports cars and Interpol competition. And I know, because I've been looking over your shoulder and I'm cheeky like that, that we've actually got stories uh, later this week, um, possibly early into early next week, that talk about the plans or the potential plans for both of those teams. Mm. So forget for a moment 
any of those qualms about LMP2 going away. First things first, I've heard, seen, read elsewhere that LMP2 is going away and we won't see it at Le Mans. Nonsense. LMP2 has got a long future at the Le Mans 24 hours. It's got a long future where we are this week with the European Le Mans series, with the Asia Le Mans series. We've already seen commitment to the current formula for a longer period in the MC WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. And I can tell you that at the moment, the commitment is around 15, one five cars for the Le Mans 24 hours from uh, 2024 onwards. Uh, and that if we get the final confirmation that says you were expecting to see, that the likelihood is that at least 10 of those will come from the European Le Mans series. My guess would be 10 from ELMS, likely one from the Asian Le Mans series. It's uh, likely a single guaranteed entry subject to what IMSA decide from the WeatherTech series, which then leaves a further three on merit or otherwise with whatever they can bring to the show for the ACO selection committee to determine uh, what would make up that uh, that 15. It might be 16, it might be 17, uh, but it's not going away. So anybody that's taken that from what's been said to this point, here, it's as simple as this, that's wrong. LMP2 is not dead. There is though, no space for it for the moment, and that's the other key proviso. At this point in history, there is not gonna be no uh, space for it uh, on the grid for the FIWC, which will, continue to cap its entries at around 38 cars for two reasons. One, it is the um, most convenient cap, if you like, for the least accommodating pit lanes that we've got in the WEC. I've seen some commentary again elsewhere that talks about other series that bring more cars on the same tracks. It's different and frankly, not necessarily better to actually cram 50 cars into a pit lane that more comfortably might accommodate less than 40. And you will find that teams and drivers not very happy about the risks that, that entails. So it's not as simple as being a numbers game. You've also got the, the stage where, you know, these are complex cars. You know, they need different handling techniques. They need different fueling techniques. It's not as simple as, but yet yeah, look at what insert name of others such championship does at same track. The second part of it is, it's the Le Mans 24 hours. 38 cars that get automatic invitations. <coughs> You've then got to add the automatic invitations uh, from a variety of other uh, areas of the sport. And then a small group of cars, including, by the way, third factory cars from those that might suggest that they would like them, uh, to add to that number. And I don't think we want to mess with that. I think we do want to have that air of anticipation when we get to usually February at the moment and we hear who's going to be coming to play for the uh, the Le Mans 24 hours I don't think I want that to change you know it's one of the world's most irritating days in a number of ways we, you know, we're trying to get facts to the web um, and ultimately it's the ACO's race and they they've got a lot of other factors they take into account other than whether a car finished 7th or 8th in European Le Mans series that there may be things that they're aware of that we don't, that those bring to the party. And I think that's about right. I've cut across you though. Tell us what Fred actually said about what the the light, the most likely scenario is and where the priorities will be placed. Mm. Yeah, so it will be two classes, hypercar and LMGT3. 
Um, and the big question is, how do you choose who's going to come and play in LMGT3? Because it's a completely new set of cars, um, and you've got a lot of manufacturers in hypercar from next year that have GT3 platforms. So Fred's answer to that question was, they want to favor loyalty, they want to favor manufacturers who have got hypercar programs, and they want to favor potentially teams who have showed loyalty to the And That's another key point that people seem to have missed, it's loyalty from the teams. It doesn't mean you can accommodate everybody, okay? It may mean that a team that's current, currently running insert name of manufacturer might want to be, or many of them may well have been already in contact with another manufacturer. So it might be the Ferrari team has decided they're less likely to get a two-car Ferrari entry than another Ferrari team. And what that means is they're responding quickly and getting on the blower to the OEMs. Because that's the other critical part here, isn't it? Which is, it's the OEMs that are going to select these teams. Yes, the OEMs are going to select these teams. They're going to be given slots, supposedly, if this happens. Um, yeah, so it'll be a free reign for them to choose. There's a lot of questions as to how they choose them, how the teams who are going to be chosen are going to find out, and when they're going to find out. And that's but another critical but, part, isn't but it? they're giving the choice to the teams. And that's a double... To the OEMs. Uh, sorry, sorry, to the OEMs. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I, I think is just going to be a WC thing. I asked the question about whether these slots would carry over to something like the LMS. There's been no discussion about that whatsoever. So it's, it's a WEC rule. Um, and so then we get on to, okay, how many hypercar manufacturers have got a GT3 platform and are likely to take up those two slots? And we're looking at double figures with that. Well, I think the answer here is, if you look at the Ferrari, there's a sliding scale, isn't there, in terms of what boxes do you tick? On the basis of what we believe we know today, I would expect um, that we're looking at somewhere around seven to nine guaranteed manufacturer duo uh, efforts there. It is going to mean some choices have to be made. Choices, by the way, by the, by the OEMs as to whether or not they want to effectively, when I say bid, I don't mean financially bid, but request them. Uh, from memory, it's, is it 11 or 12 currently homologated OEM GT3 programmes? Actually, that's not, that is right, but that includes Lexus, who have a new car coming in either 25 or possibly even 26. So Lexus would be the de facto um, representatives for Toyota. Look out for a story in the coming days on DSC about that, um, that car and the plans for that car. But we're talking here about the potential for a 2024 WC entry of around 38 cars Broadly, 20 to 22 uh, hypercars, and the, the balance being GT3. So you're then looking at somewhere between 16 and 18, or 8 and 9, two-car teams, all for different manufacturers, correct? Um, yep, and Fred is was keen to point out to the media pack that they're very confident they can make that number if they put that limit in. Yeah. Because the question was asked, if you put a limit on it for two cars per manufacturer, can you fill the grid with that? Have you got enough? Is the reason that you've not made this announcement yet because you're not sure whether you'll need LMP2 cars next year? Okay. He was very clear that there they're is going to be enough cars. Well, then comes the talk about 
manufacturers that don't have a hypercar program. Yep. There's plenty of those, and how are they going to choose who is going to join, who isn't? And what happens to a manufacturer? And I asked specifically about a manufacturer like Aston Martin, which has shown loyalty, has a GT3 platform, is currently racing in the WC, but isn't going, into, going to be in hypercar. What would they do in that scenario? And he's said it's going to be consider, you know, something they'll consider, and they want to make it as fair as possible. Yeah. So what we're really looking at here is, there's a number of, okay, be going through them very quickly, Lamborghini will be in by next year, they've got a GT3 platform. Ferrari here, they've got a GT3 platform. Uh, BMW will be in from next year, they've got a, 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 a hypercar platform, so do Porsche. Uh, Toyota will be coming along, well they have got one at the moment with the Lexus, not sure I expect that car to be coming, uh, the RCF GT3 to be in the WC, but it might be. You know, we don't know yet uh, about what happens with Toyota's new GT3 platform. Uh, you've and got don't forget Corvette. Corvette, because uh, that will count under the, uh, the GM uh, banner without a shadow of a doubt. And then you've got the rest of them. McLaren, will they, won't they, in, uh, weren't they in hypercar? Uh, we don't know. You mentioned Aston Martin. Ford. Um, Honda still have homologated um, a GT3 car. There may well be a near future uh, hypercar program there. Do I expect to see the NSX in the FIWC? I sort of don't, but I'm prepared to be wrong. Don't forget Audi as well with the R8 uh, LMS Evo 2. Um, you could argue that maybe they've burned a few bridges with the ACO with the decision to go to um, to Formula One, but the same could apply to another uh, GT3 manufacturer of next year, and that's Ford. They've evaluated hypercar at least twice to our certain knowledge and have decided instead to put the corporate dollars into GT3 with a customer program and to uh, Formula One with an engine program. So And Aston Martin, who yeah, shaped yeah, yeah. the hypercar rules. Indeed. So there's a lot of interesting decisions to be made, and I've zero doubt then when we find out if and when those decisions are made, there's going to be the equally spirited online conversation about those choices. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. I don't see a downside in having that level of diversity. I think it's what a lot of people have been asking for. A surprising amount of people seem to have a problem with that. Which yeah. I don't... I got to a point where I thought I've written the story wrong because there seemed to be a lot of people who had a real problem with the, the two-car limit as if... It was going to be a problem that we were going to have, you know, eight different manufacturers instead of four. It's here's the I, I think having drilled into it, I think the problem that they're describing, very many uh, individuals, is their concern is what the effect will be on the some of the smaller teams. There are not many small teams left in the WEC; haven't been for a while. I'll, I'll address that in a moment, and also what the route into the WEC might be for a smaller team. And I think that's a significantly more valid concern. Um, the big issue that has been missed in that um, in that debate is the WC is going back to the kind of uh, scope, scale, and form that it had before COVID. And anybody that's been down to Sainsbury's lately knows that the cost of living and everything that goes with it has not stood still. We are getting to the stage where it's going to be difficult for smaller teams to justify the very considerable amounts of money that are going to be required for you know a gt3 program gt3 programs moving forward are going to be around the cost of an lmp2 program mm. you know, something like for the sake of arguing 
three point middle number million euros per year per car for a two car team and that's got to be paid for somehow and there's not very many small teams that are going to be in a position to be able to do that at a world championship level mm. uh, yes we've been blessed with the fact that we have had some of those small teams uh, to this point but ultimately choices are, are being made here that are designed to try to power this forward there's all sorts of solutions that might be found here about teams alliancing we don't know yet we don't know yet it's going to be a really interesting period in the WEC paddock from the uh, the prevailing teams uh, here in Barcelona with the LMS teams who you you'd have to guess in GT terms are possibly amongst the teams most likely to aspire to that and then beyond that in the wider world of GT racing and the world of SRO and beyond and for that matter in IMSA racing where there's at least one or two teams have been talked about and potentially might want to tilt at joining the WEC either instead of or in addition to their current programs it's another layer of interest complexity fascination that we're going to get over the next 6, 8, 12, 24 months. Because let's face it, a team can come. It doesn't mean to say they stay for a long time. And, you know, I think there's going to be pressure on teams to perform if they're carrying that banner as the representative in the World Championship, depending on who's paying for it, from an individual manufacturer. Mm. And the, the time frame is, I think, the last thing I want to, want to cover in this discussion, because that is another key part of this. It's clear from talking to some teams already in the last week or so that they're very eager for there to be a final decision made on this and for there to be more clarity. I agree. And a couple of teams have told me that Le Mans is perhaps too late to get something together. I agree. It really isn't very long. There's, 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 a, there's two problems. There's one problem is you don't, we don't yet know the ins and outs of how this is going to work. The second problem is if we found out even today that all the teams that want to do this don't have clarity on whether they'd get those two grid slots per, per manufacturer, if that's how way this goes. And they wouldn't know that if they're gonna come with a manufacturer that isn't currently in the WC, there'd be no guarantees that you would get in. So you would put a load of work in with, for instance, I don't know, Ford or Mercedes, and say, we wanna bring two cars to the WC, put all the plans in place, do all the deals, and then find out later down the line you can't do it, and then you've got nowhere to turn. I, I tend to agree, you know, for the kind of outlay that's being sought here, not asked for, but sought here, more clarity needs to be given, likely unofficially, to at least which OEMs are gonna make it across the line when this plan is confirmed. Because that helps in a way. It shows what you can pursue and fundamentally what you can't. That's not going to be successful. Uh, there also, by the way, needs to be a pretty dynamic fallback plan should a plan fall over. Um, that needs to be a major priority. You know, These are not simple budgets to find. These are not simple programs to put together. And if you're looking, for instance, at a team coming from GTE, to GT3 and with a different car, that's a fundamental shift. It's a fundamental shift that will require um, different equipment, different specialist tooling, quite possibly in some cases, some different staff um, and all sorts of different relationships with uh, the manufacturer, their customers, board organizations, some of the partners, uh, partnerships that come with that. 
and it's sort of cart before the horse. It's a unique problem for right now because this will develop a rhythm moving forward. But what I think LMEM, ACO, FIA need to show now is yes, they've got a process. That process needs to be completed as quickly as possible. And then they need to trust the industry and help them to be as best prepared as they possibly can. Because I've said it a lot, it seems today in conversations up and down pit lane, what is happening in this sport, this industry, is that a lot of people involved are taking and carrying significant additional financial commercial risk through and since COVID. And it would be tragic if a process, the period of process takes, put that under critical pressure. We don't want to lose teams that want to come and do this and have got the means to do it. Um, what I want to hear next from um, the, the people organising the FI World Insurance Championship is a sense of urgency in getting to the point where they can have manufacturers and teams, and for that matter, the customers that those teams need to find, um, given the best information they can in as orderly a fashion as possible. Um, I agree, absolute clarity by Le Mans seems a little late. I think we might get something at least, or maybe they will, earlier than that. And the very fact the World Motorsports Council needs to sign these things off means that the timetable is not defined by wanting to announce it in a press conference. It's defined by the timetable yeah. of the World Motorsport Council because they will announce their decisions. Mm. So hopefully that might help uh, some of those pretty hard-pressed teams are working very hard indeed, not just to put programmes together, but to keep those programmes sustainable. And think up plan Bs. And think up plan B in case plan A doesn't work. You're absolutely right. Uh, balance of performance is the next topic. Okay. Um, Ethan Killian says, what does platform BOP mean? It sounds like great news for the LMDH cars, but is it going to be at the expense of LMH privateers? You want to explain what platform BOP is? is yeah, that something, I, can, yeah. I can explain platform BOP, I think. Or you can rate me on how well I can explain it. So, I'll, I'll, I'll eat an M&M while you're doing that. <laughs> okay. this is the so there's effectively two balance of performance systems. Of in, yeah, set of values in place at the same time. You've got the traditional BOP that we would see, which is individual balance of performance values for each car. The FIA and ACO have decided they will set the balance of performance in that way for multiple races at a time. Mm -hmm. And before Sebring, they set the values for the individual cars all the way through past Le Mans. Yep. With the intention that you, you know, shouldn't sandbag on the basis that We're it won't matter. It. We're yep. not going to change it, so there's no reason to hold back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty smart idea myself. Mm -hmm. yep. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens at Le Mans. And by the way, we've not... Okay. We could joke and josh about the fact there is now a rule to say you're not allowed to lobby, you're not allowed to complain mm. about balance of performance. It has made the paddock more refreshing place. <laughs> it has, significantly so. And it's another thing that's, that's attracted some you know, attention, but from the point of view of people working in that paddock week in, week out, trust me, it's, it's boring mm. when that's all you hear. It's very boring indeed. And it did get to the stage there, you know, and... Uh, damn it to hell, the six hours of Bahrain, which you were lucky enough not to be working in motorsport when that happened, was a distinct low point. 
And, you know, there were a number of manufacturers, teams, and individuals that did not come out from that shining in glory, including some of our media colleagues who were amplifying those moans and groans without actually looking at the figures. And ultimately, they were wrong, is what it came down to. So I'm not surprised that um, that was acted upon in the regulations. And I'll be blunt, and if anybody's listening that was party to the conversations, and there were several in that paddock, you will recall that I warned you that was likely to happen if this kind of carried on, and it did. So complaining about it now is, is just a little it's bit It's calmed a lot of people down. Like when you have conversations with yes. drivers and people from teams, instead of ranting and raving about it, everyone's being a lot more constructive and a lot more objective about what they're saying. And it's really helped the narrative of what's yeah. going on in the championship. And it's actually but what it means is people are now <laughs> offering analysis and explanation of the issue rather than just complaining. And, and they're thinking, actually, we've got to focus even more than ever on just improving ourselves because we're not going to get any help here. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, whether or not we should have the ACO, LMEM and the FIA running politics? Yeah, brilliant. Let's not That'd be that. great. Let's not. <laughs> so, so, yeah, back to, back to platform BOP. Yep. So you've got that standard BOP process for individual cars. Platform BOP runs alongside it. And platform BOP... Um, takes into account the fact that we've got the convergence process in play where we've got two rule sets racing in the same class. So platform BOP effectively is a BOP set for the hypercars and for the LMDH cars running in the hypercar class. Mm -hmm. So platform BOP can be changed more frequently than uh, the standard BOP and it's every two races. They don't necessarily think they're going to change it every two races, but they can change it every two races. So there are rumours it might happen for Spa, and it may favour the LMDH cars. I'll say this right now, I'll say it out loud. I don't think that would be a bad thing. No. I think it would be good for us to understand, you know, what difference that can make. Does it count against the age-old, you know, uh, tactics of perhaps putting a few bags of sand? No, it doesn't. But do I think that's going on at the moment? I don't think it is. I think people are working really... Certainly not to the level it has been in the past. No. So I think it could be interesting to see how they respond to that. We're not hearing, even quietly in the background, any really overt lobbying for that. Mm. You know, I'm sure in the absolute background, behind closed doors, there will be some pretty constructive discussions going on around it. But look, it's a process. It's a brand new process. They're going to get things right. They're going to get things wrong without a shadow of a doubt. The other quick question that comes out of this, though, um, with the same question, was uh, whether or not this would be at the expense of the LMH privateers. Well, the LMH privateers are stand at the moment. Uh, Glickenhaus and um, the Bicolas van wall um, cars. Those cars have got a pretty similar basis to them. No hybrid, it's all ice, internal combustion engine power, rear drive, etc. for those two cars. Of course the Asata Fraschidi is coming and that will be a full four-wheel drive uh, LMH car. I'm going to go back immediately to the point I made at the top of the show, which is there's a point at which you cannot decide here is the formula that has attracted this astonishing influx of huge quality and then say but tell you what we're going to dumb it down to the basis of the least well-performing car 
I get it from Jim Lickenhouse's point of view. I know he's, he's uh, been reasonably uh, loud about it becoming a bit of an arms race about your ability to fund testing. I get it, but that's the rules. It's the formula. It's the formula, it's the rules, and... You know, I think there's a difference between what's the point in everyone designing their own cars if they're not going to be able to, if they're not going to be different in performance. I, I, that's I, that's it, the core of it, right? There, there's something. It kind of comes down to this: there's going to be a moment, and it's going to come quite quickly. And there's going to be that moment, and that moment will start at Spa. It won't come at Spa. It's too early. But it will start at Spa, and it will start to roll on through the coming months and years. And that moment is when privateers get their hands on these cars. And what are they able to do with whatever resource they're able to garner with cars that are identical to those run by the factory? That, my friend, is going to be the moment. For Jim, anybody that listens to this show knows how much I admire that, the effort that's gone into that. And I will say it again, I said it last week on the show, getting any privately funded, you know, ground up design to the overall podium at the Le Mans 24 hours in whatever circumstances, with or without uh, strength of factory competition against it, against a hugely strong Gallon P2 um, uh, group, you know, a group which, let's face it, finished on the podium at pretty much the, the, uh, the height of technology in LMP1 hybrid. These are really capable cars mm. and really, really reliable cars. If you're able to do that, and he didn't just do that, he finished fourth as well, then that is an astonishing result. An astonishing result. We're now, though, in a different world. We're now at this point where this is beginning to roll and explode, and there's more coming, there's still more to come. You've then got to accept the realities of what that means. You know, Ferrari and Porsche and BMW and all the rest are not going to come and not put their best efforts against what the rule books say they can do in terms of testing. Remember, beyond year one, they are capped on what they can do on testing. They're not, not going to do that if they think it might make the difference between success and failure for programs they are spending tens of millions of euros on. And you know, I'm really sorry, Jim, in this kind of circumstance. I get it. I understand your point of view, but that's the formula. And the reality is, as we've said before about balance of performance, not a lot of point in moaning about a set of rules that you signed up to. Mm. I agree. Uh, the full guy says, hey, MP, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry it's not Marshall sitting uh, here right are. now, we all are. talking right now. Hey MP, it seems after the BOP is closed up for all four GTP cars um, that the Acura still continues to have a pep and pace. Why is this? Uh, is it the IndyCar motor that's that much more powerful compared to its rivals? And do you think Ricky Taylor should have waited another lap or so to pass the Porsche? Uh, let's the have, second one's an interesting one. The second one, you, uh, we watched that together and we did. The I mean, the answer there is yes. Right, move on. Matthew Chamonix was a hero keeping that car on the track. Um, the, the, the Porsche and I think Ricky you know if he was sitting here now uh, showing the M&M's um, he would probably agree but that's not what race drivers do and he would have seen the opportunity and the difference between success and failure in those regards is measured in microseconds and much as it looked like 
it was a very, very late uh, move and decision. The difference between being able to make that corner and not is just tiny. And he, you could see in the, the in-car shot, he felt that. He felt that. He knew. He knew not only that he'd ended the car's race, but he'd blown a very likely chance of winning that race. Bizarrely, I had a conversation with Philippe Albuquerque before Long Beach, and he was talking to me about um, this sort of thing, talking about Sebring and the incident that happened in the Sebring, and he said, the problem is you're operating at this level in GTP and these sort of cars where you've got to be ballsy through traffic, there's a lot of pressure, and it all comes down to less than a tenth of a second. And if you see the gap, you go for the gap most of the time, and sometimes it just doesn't pay off. I think that was one of those ones, and I, I, you know what? I know there's been all sorts of quotes about, you know, the day you go for, don't go for a gap, it's the day you, you hang up your helmet, etc. He's a race driver. It's a street circuit, the margins are absolutely tiny. But boy, did he give us some drama there. Uh, I've completely forgotten the other part of the question. It's, it's about Acura and saying that they've closed the BOP up between the cars and yet the Acura is still still the car to beat. You know, how much of the of that is the IndyCar motor that they've got in the back? I think the motor is astonishing, is the straight answer. The motor is but astonishing. As a package, the entire They've, ju- they've done just a really good... It, it looks... I'm trying to think the right way. It just looks more nimble. It looks like... Despite being bigger and bulkier as a car. It looks, the Acura just looks like an easier <coughs> weapon to handle in a, in a, in a close-fought fight. It just, and obviously, Ricky would probably disagree after that turn. But um, it just looks somehow just that tiny bit more raceable at the moment. We, I, had, I, we had the conversation after Rolex where I said to you, it kind of looks the same as the, the previous DPI Acura. And you said, no, it doesn't. Wait till you see it in person. And seeing it at Sebring, completely agree. It, it's a... It's, definitely a different animal mm-hmm. and it's taken a step up yeah well, i think you know it's it's going to be a package it's going to be yeah you know, is the engine got a part to play yes you know um, might it be something to do with the fact it's the smallest most compact engine of the lot might be in terms of weight distribution and all the good things that come with that but it's everything that surrounds it you know orica build a very good car without a shadow of a doubt uh, hpd certainly know their way around designing a very wealthy car. They've been doing it for a very long time now in uh, sports car racing. And all those things come together and, you know, the sense of pride in what they'd achieved, you could see that. And put aside all the bullshit about, you know, tyre pressures and blah, 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 and how unfair this is. The result stands. We move forward. It's an epic race car. And it's great to see that car at the level it's at right now. And again, it's a little bit like Toyota, but less so that the rest of them know that they've got to up their game a little bit to kind of reach that that level. The Cadillac is looking very good. Mm. Porsche are definitely making strides. And BMW is getting better as well. BMW, but th- I think it's, it's that thing, isn't it? BMW was, was certainly the car that was last out of the traps. They had bigger strides to make, but those initial big strides are the easier ones to make. You're learning the big lessons early. You're then sliding off the tenths of seconds. It's coming. You know, we talked about when we might see this, this depth of competition. I think in GTP you're going to get it quicker than we are at the WEC. It's further down the line in the season as well, isn't it? It is. We're yeah. seeing a preview almost of what WEC could look like after so. Spa. I really hope so. I, know. I want to go back as well, by the way, before we, we crack on. 
because uh, there's a couple of other bits and pieces within the uh, the BOP. Uh, Matthew Levine says, why does the FIWC hate Glickenhouse? They have two years of data for that car and can't give it a fair BOP. You don't know that. I'm sorry, but you don't know that. I think the, the reality is Glickenhouse had a pretty ropey um, start to the season at, uh, at Sebring and they hadn't tested. And I think, Matthew, here's the point. Jim would say, I need to say so fairly, they just don't have the budget to test in the way that the factory teams do. What's the fair way about that? What's the fair thing to do? Is that to say, well, you can't afford it, therefore we're going to make sure that we give you an unfair advantage in competitive terms? That's just Stephen banging the bench on the floor, don't worry. Don't yeah. Um, we've had coffee, we've had M&Ms, it's now bench banging time. <laughs> but I, I'm not sure what fair looks like in that situation i think fair looks like you've got to get the best out of the package and if that means that you've got a competitive disadvantage because you don't have the resource in one area or the other then that's sort of how motorsport works it's like it's can you reach the number can you reach the value if you can reach the value the difference in the cars is how quickly you can go through corners how yep. stable the car is how quickly it delivers the power how stable I it is through traffic it's is it fair on the other teams to reel them back in to Glickenhouse's level because Glickenhouse isn't there? Yeah, well, here's the thing: Glickenhouse at the moment's level. Who knows? You know, the car was pretty convincing at Le Mans in past years. It could be significantly better. It was significantly better at Portimao than it was at Sebring. Mm. Very significantly better. Took a while to get the tyres, um, you know, uh, heated up. It was there battling away in the. Uh, upper echelons of the LMP2 class for a while but then it got past those cars and I think other than the first pit stop uh, didn't fall behind them again but I'm not sure what the right answer here is um, you, you've basically got to make a decision about the philosophy haven't you in the last couple of years we had a philosophy of there's not a great deal of depth in the class and therefore we need to sort of alter the rules to get better competition across the season. That gave us some good fun for a while, didn't it? You know, the Glickenhouse at uh, Monza was epic, but then again, it was running pretty epic power. Um, we're now in a different world, and it's 11 cars in the top class uh, last weekend. It'll be 12, I keep having to remind myself, next weekend, not this weekend. It'll be 13 by the time we get to Monza. And by the end of this season, if the Asota is successful, it'll be 14. And then next year, we'll be up at around the 20 mark or more. What do you do then? Do you say to Lamborghini and Alpine and BMW, all of whom will be you know, getting into their test programs pretty quickly? And by the way, to those privateer teams that are investing heavily uh, in terms of the uh, programs they've got with with customer cars as well, Th do you say to them, "Thanks for bringing kind of hurts," you know? Uh, but what we're going to do, and, and thanks by the way for spending some of those millions you've managed to attract from those corporate sponsors that have taken you a career to get to that kind of level. Uh, but uh, we think it's brilliant. You can do a two minute fifteen lap. Uh, but unfortunately, this guy can't afford that same testing, so therefore we're not going to allow you to do anything quicker than 2.30. That doesn't strike me as being the kind of racing that most people want to see. Mm. 
I don't think so either. So there you go. I mean, uh, apologies if, if that's not what you want to hear. I hope Jim sticks with it. I hope Jim sticks with it. I hope he manages to get some commercial backing um, to up the game a little bit. I think we saw some encouraging signs from Clickenhouse. But do I think the answer to that is to turn around and say, tell you what, let's give everybody five, three, four percent less performance? The answer is no, I don't. Uh, at some point, you've got to compete to a level that's appropriate for the rule book. And I go back to the very first thing I said at the start of the show. They're all given the same numbers. You're all given the same numbers. The same basic numbers apply to all the cars in that class. You've then got to get as close as you possibly can to the maximum possible performance that those numbers give to you. And the gap that you're currently seeing from Toyota to the rest is a mark of the progress that each of those teams has made and has been able to make with whatever they've got you know, on those four wheels and whatever they've got in terms of the resource, financial, technical, human um, on those teams. That is the key to this part of the sport. And I think that's the right formula. Yeah. Uh, we're not far away from, uh, from packing this one in, uh, coming, uh, closing in on about an hour and a half. Should we pick a couple more? Yep. We've got um, two more topics left, really. Let's go for it, then. Yeah, let's go Peugeot first. Uh, Alex Nordic says, is the 968 the new Nissan GTR LM Nismo? Oh. Brilliant out-of-the-box thinking that doesn't actually work. It worked better at, um, <coughs> at Portimao. Whether or not there's bigger, bigger strides to be made, I think will start to show itself again at Spa. Um, but it was, uh, I have to say, a surprise and a pleasure to see the cars running, racing, uh, as trouble-free as they did. Yes, one of them lost that lap at the start with a power steering problem on the way to the grid. Uh, steering rack changed in that car. Uh, but other than that, they ran trouble-free. Not well, throttle, throttle issue, throttle map issue wasn't there for the, uh, for the car that did feature in the midfield. But, 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 the, but the car significantly more convincing there than it had been before. Um, do I think... This looks like a world championship winning car yet? Yeah. No, no, I don't think it does. Um, I've been surprised before. I'm looking for a big leap from that car. That car inevitably has been designed for the FIWEC. What do we know, Stephen, about cars that are designed for the FIWEC that quite often there's a focus on the Le Mans 24 hours? If that car looks way off the pace, in clear air and in um, fine fettle at Le Mans, then I think there's going to be more than head scratching at Peugeot about the 9x8 com uh, concept. But it's not run there yet. I'm really keen to see just exactly what they can squeeze out of that package when it gets to the Circuit de la Salle. The really frustrating thing about this Peugeot effort it's a really good Lego set. It's a really good Lego set. Buy it now, £239. <laughs> um, uh, they're not talking to us, Graham. No. It's a re out of all the other factories that are in the press room that are trying to get you to there talk to that. the drivers, that are trying to be as open as possible and, fan and open more than I thought they'd ever be in places like Ferrari. Well, to, to get less. Where are they? To get less communication from Peugeot than you're getting from Ferrari is frankly not, not words I thought I'd ever be saying. No. And, you know, they've not been in the press room at all this season. And, at and here's all. the problem 
if you've got a program that isn't going necessarily to plan or the way you want it to go, if you don't talk to the people in the media you're that are telling join, everyone you're about You're going to join it, the dots? Yeah, people are joining dots, people are spreading rumours, there's lots of rumours and speculation because they're being more and more closed as this season goes on. And I which, think that's the wrong strategy. Which is really tragic. You know, I was, uh, uh, together with a number of other colleagues, invited... Why were they in the press room telling us about this livery? Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, well, we'll come to the livery in a moment. <laughs> At um, least. Where, where we were invited along, oddly enough, to port him out to see the car for the first time. And they were impressively open. And I you know, sat in on some technical conversations that I didn't understand a word of, to be blunt. But what I could tell you... in French. Well, <laughs> but what I could tell you is they were getting some pretty direct questions and they were giving expansive answers. And that's not what we've been used to at the top end of sports car racing through the hybrid era at all. And they were really properly opening up and giving us an awful lot in terms of detail that we could bring to readers, listeners, viewers, etc., etc., And it's not been like that since the start of this season, since the end of last season. They need someone in that room. And, you know, I've already fed that back pretty directly to some senior people at Peugeot, and I'll keep doing it, is the straight answer. I want that car to succeed, because there's no doubt in my mind, it's a car that draws the eye, it draws opinion, it draws support, there are people that think that's the most astonishing, fantastic, even beautiful thing they've ever seen. There are others that profoundly disagree but appreciate the difference, if you like. Um, but they do need to communicate about progress better than they currently are. You then went on to say about the livery. Um, I have massive admiration for our French neighbours and their, their approach to a, a whole range of things in uh, in technology, in sports, in just civilised society. The food's great as well. I have to say it's a depressing answer to give that the people they have that deal with marketing speak are even worse than some of the people I've dealt with in my uh, UK career. The, You've dealt with a few of them. The, I've dealt with a few of them. The, the an announcements of that livery, which we sort of had to, you know, we had that story written, written um, to run with hours before um, anybody else basically managed to guess their way through to this is actually what the livery is designed to do because it didn't say it anywhere. And there were no race numbers on the car, which is usually a sign that yep. it's not going to race. So, I mean, ultimately, what we found is that the livery will be at Le Mans and it's likely to be on the cars. For the remainder of the season? For the remainder of the season. Okay. Um, another interesting tidbit about this okay. is the fact that I'm, I'm told on good authority that the drivers and, and the crew are going to wear special suits that are designed to match the livery of the car, which look really fantastic. They'll and be camouflaged. But they're only giving the drivers one race suit each. So they're going to do media briefings and photo calls in those suits, but they're going to race in the grey suits. How bizarre. Mm. Uh, there is another part to this, by the way, because um, the, the fact that this was going to happen um, came into a discussion I did have with an old friend uh, at Peugeot, and I asked the question because the initial um, uh, story that I heard was there was going to be some form of heritage tribute livery, which it sort of is. Mm. Um, it's a very modern take on the old Peugeot Tolbo um, uh, racing colours. Like Garage 59's sort of yes. modern interpretation of, of the, the long McLaren's. Yeah. Yeah. 
But um, so I actually asked the question, are we going to see some kind of tribute livery? I got actually a pretty good answer from the lady who's been, you know, looking after communications at Peugeot all the way back to the 908. Uh, but that elicited a really interesting response as to why we'll see fewer, perhaps, in the future of these tribute liveries. It's another of the differences between LMP1 and hypercar. LMP1, you had a minimum weight. You have a minimum weight in hypercar, but then you have other minimum weights because that 1,030 kilos is then broken up into packages. So each part of the package has to reach a minimum weight, including the decals, effectively the livery. So if you're going to replace the livery that the car is homologated with, the livery has to weigh the same as the livery it was homologated with. It's one of those things that people don't think about. I certainly didn't. Um, and just in general, the weight of paint on cars and liveries on cars and stickers on cars is something that is considered when people go racing. I remember having long conversations with the guys at Clearwater back when they were talking about putting the chrome on the cars and how different the weight was by wrapping a car in chrome. Yeah, it, absolutely. Just, well, it's, don't think about it, do you? you, but, you, but you but don't. It it's just that that looks awesome. It's yeah, basically yeah. our level. I mean, you know, we are, but much as we work in this industry, work in this sport, you know, we are like a load of you people that listen to this show, and thank you for doing so. Is we are at heart genuinely enthusiastic about the, the the sport that we love. You know, we are still those guys that go, look at that, that's amazing. And you know, and anybody that's listened to the show for long enough will know that Marshall is exactly the same. Yes, you then have to because it's the job get into the other layers that go with it, but. Don't ever mistake us for being anything other than complete bobble hats, because that's exactly what we are. You know, we spend a lot of our time, as Stephen will um, with will uh, yeah, agree, and he's not been on a road trip with us since he's been back, but they're coming up. You know, we spend a lot of our time talking about the kind of minutiae nonsense that every fan starts talking about. You know, who are the ten most awesome drivers in the paddock? Who are the ten worst? With a tenant been to prison. Can you name every title sponsor in the net in, in, in WC history? <laughs> it's got to be said. I, you know, I like to think of myself as being a beloved figure in the Delhi sports car uh, universe. It's not always the case, and that 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 that's, that sense of being beloved tends to stop as soon as the car door shuts and they hear what the latest challenge I've got for them on a road trip is. You know. So, so Stuart Hart says, and. Um, and I'm so sorry, Stuart, that, that you aren't able to ask Marshall this because he's not here. I'm so yes. sorry for the downgrade. He asks what we think of the art car. I think we're on a different wavelength with this. Am I correct that you don't really like it? I, I, I do. I think it's awesome. I think it's always a mistake to judge a car in a render. That's a really political answer. No, 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 it's not. Because what you'll tend to find that the, the art of putting a render together tends to mean you're not seeing the car as you would see it in reality. Yeah. And it's to do with the way in which you'll be presented with images that have got elements of that livery in the background, uh, the background colour that's chosen, which is not necessarily the real world. In isolation, those cars can look better or worse than they do as a render. That's what I mean. Mm. So it's that thing about, you know, if you've got a swoosh of colour, and the artist, because they're artists, 
will somewhere to the rear or above the car use the same colour, the same swoosh. Like the Jota renders. You're not, the, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You're not going to see that in reality. And that's what I mean. Actually seeing the car, wheels on the ground, um, is very often a completely different experience. I mean, even, even colour. Colour, uh, there's a good example actually here this weekend. The burgundy car. <laughs> I, I walked it twice into the AF Corsa garage to say hello to people, to look at the cars for the first time. It was the third time I saw the number 50 car. Is it Formula 50? Racing, is Formula it? Racing yeah. car. That it was either yourself or David Law described it as being purple. And I looked at it, and this car that I'd seen as being black absolutely was. It's just the lighting in the garage. When you've got the daylight and they open the, the garage doors, it's a very deep burgundy purple. It's a beautiful colour, fantastic colour. How well it photographs, we'll wait and see. But, you know, daylight does amazing things. Photography does amazing things. You know, I had a long conversation um, with a team owner. I'm trying to remember where it might have been uh, at Sebring about livery and strident colours that just often don't work in photography on TV. Mm. A good example, actually, the uh, the Vector Sport colours. Mm. When you saw it standing still, looked pretty nice. It's a kind of, it's a throwback couple of colours from Isotta Fraschini's past. That's what it's meant to be. <laughs> TV, it died. And I know part of the reason why is the rat was not as pearlescent as it was designed to be. There was an issue to do with supply, etc. But in certain certain colours and colour combinations die on camera. They just do, they just don't stand out. And, you know, a little by design, we've got this thing, of course, with WCTV and cars looking the same across the two cars in the, in the same team. Making a car stand out on track is a massive, massive skill. We, you know, we, we talk often about the skills of some of our friends and other people we don't know in the industry. Andy Blackmore, of course, is a long-time friend. Um, oddly enough, was talking about one of his, um, his liveries on a McLaren F1 today that's still fresh. It is. It takes something to take a brief on something as complex, as multifaceted as a race car that doesn't just have to operate well in a static form whether or not that be sitting on a pit lane or in an awning or in a dark garage and then has to work at speed out on a track in traffic stand out and then you look at some of the liveries that always do some of those liveries that have become you know iconic in in that way and, you know I'm, because i'm thinking of andy at the moment i'm thinking something like the turn of bmw <laughs> The two. Now the turn of BMW it doesn't matter whether or not you like you know yellow and blue. It doesn't matter. You see a yellow and blue uh, BMW, you think that's a Turner car, instantly. Mm. Okay, and there's a real skill in that, and there's equally well a real skill in making keeping that fresh year in year out. Those subtle changes, you know, when design language tastes change sticking with that. That's where I'm lost in operation for someone who's been in the game as long as Andy Blackmore has, is he's still producing truly fresh liveries. What is it now, Andy? 90, 100 years after? No, there's, of course, from, you know, from the mid-late 90s to here now, getting to the mid-2020s, and still schooling 
people coming out of you know art school and what it takes to for a race team to show value to the people investing in that product that's what that livery is okay yeah. that livery is the team's billboard and the billboard for everybody helping to fund it that's it's a proper skill it's a proper skill graphic art in all its forms um, is a wonderful thing to behold in the same way that great photography is you know having that eye to do something with it and um, we're lucky to have skilled professionals doing things like livery design doing you know there's been a, a an explosion actually in recent years of truly fantastic poster design again you know, we went through a period where it's all a bit a little bit photoshoppy you know, I, I hope yeah. he listens to this by the way because I think there's a, there's a young man out there doing great work who thinks I think that I don't rate him and don't like his stuff Jack Yorath amazing stuff amazing. across the board always has amazing been amazing stuff absolutely always has been and you know, Jake now being picked up by big name manufacturers and big name championships. Why? Because his stuff's great. And the great thing about Jake's stuff is it does two things. Three things. It it uses the palette that those people want. And that tends to be engaging to the art. It tends subconsciously to speak to you about what it is you're looking at. Is it a Bentley? Is it an Aston Martin? Is it something to do with spa? and the subtlety of using the reds and the yellows and the spark, all of that kind of stuff. He's very contemporary, but he's also incredibly respectful of tradition of graphic art. And it's a good I, blend. It is a great blend. You know, and you'll see immediately when people are there with the giveaway posters that sometimes you know, they're lucky enough to see on the autograph tables that you know, you're drawn to that, that quality. You know, Jake's the first name I'm thinking of here. He's not the only one out there in that marketplace. That's a great thing as well. You it's know. really hard, especially in this day and age where there's so many partners and sponsors and messages that need to get across in advertisements yeah. like that. To be able to include all that and get all that across and fit that brief in a poster, something as simple, not as simple as a poster, but something like a poster and still make it look good enough that you want to hang it on your wall. And this is coming from somebody that my walls as a kid were covered in most places. Oh, might mean my son, um, who <coughs> happily was with his wife at Portimao. It was delightful to see them there. Um, for many, many years, one entire wall in his bedroom was absolutely plastered with the official posters of Le Mans that we've managed to collect. Yeah. All of them. So am I. And it's, you know, that it's like a history of graphic art. Mm. Some of it good, and they, some of it not so good. They did kind of get worse from the moment I started going to the Gradually, every year, it's slightly worse. The key to it is keeping that, that link of tradition and, and innovation, mm. I think. And like I say, you know, if you're listening, I hope you are, Jake. Well done, Sunshine, because some of the stuff we've seen from you over the last two or three years has been absolutely awesome. And keep it up. Uh, and I hope to shake your hand soon somewhere but let's move on because yeah. we, we, we do need to wrap it up pretty soon otherwise Marshall will be on the blower and will be issuing a electronic kick up the ass nice. so I'm going to run through a last few uh, questions the last discussions think. about hypercar and McLaren isn't it uh, well, I think we're going to leave that one to one side for this week and mm. there's a good reason for that mm. so we'll come, we'll come to that one perhaps in next week or even the week after the show but um, we're not going to say why 
but all will become clear, I think it's fair to say. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think that's fair. So, let's have a quick look. Uh, John Schultz says, do you think we could see the return of a subclass for boutique and private teams, top class? I think that's a really good question. Uh, whether or not there's an appetite for that moving forward, I think would be quite interesting. I think the, the performance of the Asotto Fraschini might be actually quite an interesting one moving forward. One quick thing to say about that, that car, by the way, is I completely understand people's impatience to see that car on track. Um, but again, we've seen another debate about Monza and, you know, this, that and the other and 38 cars and look, don't wish the programme away. There is a reality here. If you're listening, Claudio Barrow, sorry for the words I'm about to say, they ain't going to be ready. They're not going to be ready to be competitive. And I think they are getting to the stage where they are pretty clear that it's better to be convincing them to be just there. Um, it's a shame that that is their home race and that's coming at a time shame. when they're looking to potentially start There'll be other Monza going. races. Yeah. Okay. It just wouldn't have been cool. No, no, it would have been cool. And I hope we see the car there. I hope we see the car there. I hope there's an opportunity. It's not traditionally something the ACO have tended to do, but I hope they do to see the car and hopefully see the car run. I hope we do. That'd be cool. And, and, you know, if I speak to um, the ACO management, and they'll have heard this before I catch them, so they'll, they'll now hide from me. Um, I'll be encouraging them to do exactly that. Yeah, a, a dynamic debut is a lovely thing to have. You know, a taste of what's coming next year, if you like. And the thing is, there are going to be so many fans there this year. I don't oh, yeah. think we quite understand. There might be a few Italians there, yeah. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great for the WC to be able to put that car, maybe just put it in the paddock, yeah. find a way to do that, because there are going to be a lot of Italians there who really respect that programme and yeah. really want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be a big know. pull for people who love their motorsport uh, well, there. You know, we're, we're, we're both very British. And we're, I think we're Don't right... you know? We're, we're rightly proud of our nation's motorsport heritage, and so are the Italians. And, you know, whilst there are people in our sport who are kind of very tribal and focused on one brand. There are lots that aren't, you know, and take pride in the, the efforts and the successes of, you know, a century of Alfa Romeo and Lancia and Fiat and Maserati and then later with obviously Lamborghini later, later there. But Isotto Fraschini, there's not going to be many people who were there the last time an Isotto Fraschini race, but there might be the odd one or two. But here's the thing. They love their history, don't they? They do love their history. And the pride in the engineering that goes into it, and Michelotto and the fabulous history that that organisation's actually got. Um, don't wish away the success on that one. I hope they make a race or two this year. They, they won't be at Monza as, uh, in racing terms. They just won't. The car is not yet ready. It is crucially important, particularly for that car, because it is more complex than the van wall or the um the uh, the glickenhaus to get it right because that homologation is going to be an important document for them moving forward um the, the answer to the question about the will there be a subclass not heard anything about that yet i think we're way away from that probably the way in which that will be defined or otherwise is just where they place those cars moving forward might there be a sub-category as there really is beyond the manufacturer's world championship for the team's championship maybe that's where you put them mm. maybe that's what you do um, but make it worth having make it something that you can truly aspire to and there's no doubt in my mind that every single team that is going to put an effort together in hypercar and there's going to be more than you currently think 
uh, in the year or two to come, um, that they aspire to, not to put too fine a point on it, handing Toyota's arse to them. You know, basically, <laughs> they want to beat Toyota. That's what this is about. This is not about turning up and hoping the car doesn't crap itself. You know, this is about going out there and performing to a really high level. That's what these people aspire to, and I love them all for it. It's great to see a team that's focused on, on absolute performance. And you want to know what that looks like right now, today? Don't look at Hypercar, look at LMP2. Look at the, the dynamic between United and Prima and WRT, and when they get the cars moving a bit more convincingly um, at Alpine, and for that matter, you know, the likes of Vector Sport and Inter Europol who are pushing very hard and with some success uh, to get to those kind of levels as well. That's where you want to look at to look at what you've got to come in hypercar. It's people squeezing more out of a package they used to get less out of. Mm. Let's have a quick look what's, uh, what remains here. Um, We'll go for oh, Tom Bacon. Yeah, well, Jacob Bunny actually says about this uh, possibility of the, the car attending the Monza round. Participating in the practice sessions, that's not going to happen because that's officially the race meeting complex uh, rules. But to, to participate in a practice session, you've got to be on the official entry. They're not going to be on the official entry, Jacob. Whether or not he gets a dynamic debut, uh, I, I'd be more than happy to lobby for that. Uh, who else we got? Tom Bacon. How impressed are you with Lulu Wadu after a debut for Ferrari? Delighted to tell you, by the way, I bumped into Deborah Meyer um, in the paddock at uh, Barcelona today. We had a, a nice chat about that. And I, I thanked her for what she's done with the Iron Dames programme and with the efforts behind the Women, Women in Motorsport Commission, her efforts, the efforts before her course, um, of Michel Mouton and the people that surrounded her it is a delight to say we are through an era of tokenism and into a better place on the other side and that that includes people in every aspect of this sport we need more of them still if you're out there and you're you know, a young or even an older um, woman that is keen on finding out where you might fit into a role in this sport Go and ask somebody. If you're not sure who to ask, drop me a line and ask me. I'll introduce you to people. Um, if you've got a skill set, if you've got a passion, there's going to be a place for you um, in the sport, in the business of, of motor racing, I have no doubt. And be prepared to have to match up against the people who are currently there. Uh, it's, I think, a great time for women in the sport. Things are opening up dramatically. But going back to young Lilo Wadu, um, I was hugely impressed. Superb. She yep. did so well uh, after the real disappointment of the car crashing out before she got into it at uh, Sebring. To, to match the best performance of any female in the WEC, second in GTE Am, and to be the first of four uh, women on that podium of nine drivers. So four of the nine drivers that made the GTE Am uh, podium. Uh, that's another record. Um, at Portim, uh, Portimao were, were women and that I think is something to be correctly proud of. Talking not that long ago, oddly enough at Portimao at the LMS last year to uh, a couple of incredibly hard-working um, content creators, we're going to call them <coughs> bloggers, but content creators from 
the world of F2 and F1, who were invited along as, as guests there. And we were talking about, you know, what defines sports car racing. We talked about the sustainability aspect where we've taken bigger strides than most. But then we got talking about the Iron Dames projects. And I said to them at the start of the weekend, these girls are going to win a race and they're going to win soon. And I won that race. And that interaction with them, two young women making their way in a highly competitive world and working really, really hard to do it. That's our content creator friends. And the level that they were impressed at the level at which these young women have been operating in a very deep field indeed. And Lila Wadu has just come in, um, put on the boxing gloves and went out there swinging. And she went head to head with the Iron Dames and she came out ahead uh, this time. And by the way, beyond that, not just the Iron Dames, but was putting the moves on the whole field. Um, great to see. I think we've got a lot more to see coming. And with those four, with Sarah Bovey, with Rahel Fry, Michelle Gatting, still in the Iron Dames car, and Dorian Pan, um, blasting through into P2 as well. And let's see what comes of that programme. I think we all have good reason to have a bit of a warm glow about the state of play in terms of females in the pinnacle of our sport. Definitely. What else we got left there? Uh, Stephen Gage, should we go with that one? Says, you're at the wheel of the Wayne Taylor Racing Acura at Long Beach on the last lap. Do you lick the stamp and send it in a do or die move for the win at turn one or do you wait for an opportunity further around the lap or if it doesn't materialise and bank the championship points? Here's the thing, here I am sitting at a kitchen table with a now half a bag of M&M's and an empty coffee That's cup. That's a very optimistic half bag. Is it? Oh dear. Um, <laughs> sorry Trudy. Um, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, not even a third. What are uh, you doing over there? It's, it's very easy to turn around and say, of course, uh, I could see that he was in trouble on his tyres, but he was over there and I've waited for an opportune moment uh, to make the pass. There's a really good reason why I am sitting here doing a podcast and Ricky Taylor was the man sitting in the cockpit of that Acura. And it doesn't need me to tell you what that reason is. It's because he's got talent and he's got skill. And uh, in terms of making those decisions, I have neither of those. And I'll tell you right now, wherever I'd have passed that car, uh, number one, I wouldn't have got passed. I'd probably crashed into it. And number two, I'd certainly have ended up in the wall and probably done a lot more damage. So, yes, the smart thing would have been to wait. But I'm not that guy at that moment in that car. And I didn't see what he saw. And I didn't know what he, d he knew. And I don't know whether or not he made um, a mistake in terms of his timing, his positioning, whether or not something went slightly wrong in the car. I don't know. Um, but I would never seek to second guess a driver of the quality of Ricky Taylor. Uh, one of the absolute talents at the moment in sports car racing. And not his best moment at the wheel of a race car, but neither will it be his last opportunity to show that he's as awesome as he absolutely is. Yeah, if it'd been me, let me pop my hand up and say, I'm gonna be that arsehole that basically says, yeah, I would have made that move. I'd have waited till later in the lap when there was a clearer uh, overtaking opportunity. But I could just as easily have thrown the race away in a completely different way. And I'll tell you right now, I can say that, but I've never got to the back of that, per of that Porsche in the first place. <laughs> I'd have bent the championship points as well. Sorry, Ricky. Um, 
Jacob Money, if the Wackety Wack was to change in any way, what way would you like it to change? I think I'd like it to be called officially on the logo, the FIA Wackety Wack. Um, I think they're making changes and it's a delight to be in a really small part, part of those changes. I think people have noticed that there's been a real effort to try to open up communication to offer more. Uh, things like, you know, expansion of the WC Full Access programme to be a longer form programme that went down really well. You know, Martin, Haven and I um, have been arguing for some time to have that FP3 show. We've just been arguing for some time. Just arguing a lot. Um, we've got that now. It's drawn an audience. It's going to continue to draw an audience. We're delighted with that. And we know that the feedback has been really good. I can only say I've got no further news yet, but genuinely watch this space for more. We are talking to people about doing more. Um, so what would I change? One key thing, if decisions are made, explain the decisions. Because I think what we've seen over this last week, in fact, we spent most of this, uh, the show, talking about it, Stephen, is where people get confused and at times aerated is when they don't understand the decision-making process. And I think they can be better. I think we can all be better at explaining more our opinions or our decisions. And I think where you're trying to build an audience, doing that is, is a really smart thing to do. You're not always going to get uh, everybody agreeing with you, but I think you've just got to have the courage and convictions. I am making this decision because. And on the challenge, I'm making this decision because and your opinion differs from that decision. This is why I disagree with you. You're the guy in the chair. Take the responsibility, make it clear. And I think you take more people with you by doing that than you lose in the argument. Do you want what you want, not what I would change? Pardon? Do you want to know what I would change? Is it the buffet? <laughs> now, there's no time, there's no need for this. Oh. Uh, what would you change? Go on. No, I don't want to say that. <laughs> no, the one thing I really admire about IMSA, and I actually mentioned this to Fred in that media briefing, um, this comes down to something that we discussed and we were receiving. And we were walking through the paddock during the 12 hours. Um, and walk through the fan zone. I think the manufacturer fee is a really good idea. It's a really good rule. Making the manufacturers put some investment into the championship that they have to use in, in parts yes. for marketing and things like that. The one thing this championship really lacks outside of Le Mans and outside of perhaps Fuji is it feeling like a world championship at those events. Activation. The activation, we saw it for a short period in you like did. 2015, 2016, where they were starting to build up what the fan zones looked like, what events and PR activities there were going to be around an event. And it kind of went away and it needs to come back, especially now. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think it opens up real possibilities. I think it helps um, the OEMs to focus their attention on being ambassadors for the brand their own brand and the championship brand if you like the, there are difficulties outside of North America and outside the US clearly pretty key to it is it is it's an international championship but it's principally a US championship and that means that the markets within which you're operating principally not exclusively there are examples of that money being spent um, you know, across international markets, 
it's in a pretty uh, close shop is the wrong thing it's in a pretty closed um, system US broadcast market the marketing side of things the business to business stuff the business to customer stuff that's significantly more challenging on a global scale mm. you know? yeah, yeah. but I do think there is possibly a happy medium somewhere I don't disagree with you I would like to see um, there being some drive to make more of a show at some or all of these races at some they do you know at Fuji is Circus well, Safari, yeah. well aware you know there's always something to go and do behind the main stand oddly enough one of the other ones that try really really hard is Bahrain always there's Mexico always, was good Mexico there's plenty to do you know, and it See, is that thing. Uh, Silverstone for a time did have that kind of hub yeah. in the middle of the circuit where you had some manufacturers. Here's the other thing. Cool. Unwittingly, one of the best things that was ever done at any um, WC race came at Silverstone. And it came by accident. I don't know if you remember this. It was pretty ropey weather. And yeah, famously, things like cell service isn't great at uh, most out-of-time racetracks. Which meant that actually, rather bizarrely, one of the not quite unique things to the UK came into its own because very large numbers of the fans were using the circuit um, uh, shuttle double-decker buses with onboard Wi-Fi as mobile grandstands. Great idea, you know, do more of that. It's, I'd like to see some out-of-the-box thinking. I'm a real believer in reaching out to clever people and for that matter to consumers to get better answers. And I'd love to see uh, a move from some of the communicators with the brands and with the WEC to reach out to groups of fans, people are paying at the, at the gate, people are paying for the TV to find out what it is they would like to do. When I first moved away from a paying day job into motorsport, which most certainly is not a day by day paying pay day job. It's not even a job. Yes, <laughs> it's it's a mission. Um, it's vocational. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's that. Um, one of the very first commissions I got was from uh, somebody who wanted me to go to a race meeting and give an opinion on what I saw as the package from a consumer's point of view. And you bizarrely bumped into me. I did. <laughs> and you'll recall that day, I took my daughter. <laughs> and the idea was, uh, the morning, I would operate uh, effectively as an um, individual punter. In the afternoon, I got quite a bit of assistance with some hospitality and to, to, to look at how the show came together. That was a British Touring Car Championship. And to be blunt, as a punter, uh, and with a, how can we put this, bless her, as she approaches her 20th year, when she certainly wasn't 20 then, uh, my lovely daughter can be somewhat distracted and needs distraction and needs not to be sitting in one place looking at cars going round and round for hour after hour after hour. And the reality was that from a point of view of a family day out, it just didn't stack up. Much better when you've actually got someone paying for your hospitality, but of course it is. Mm. It's the difference between going to Luton Airport and paying for a, you know, a cheap Ryanair flight and flying first class on Emirates, mm. you know, and being pampered. Of course it is. But I, I, I'd love to see a move for some sort of opportunity for fans to feed in. Forget for a minute things about the calendar. We'll deal with the calendar, by the way, 
next week's Weekend Sports Car uh, podcast. I'd love to see more of that reaching out to the people those manufacturers want to reach. Mm. Uh, not the people being pampered in their hospitality, but maybe the people haven't reached yet. What is it you want to come and see? We know what some of them want to come and see because we, we try to help them with that. Mm. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Maybe not always at Le Mans, but if you do see Stephen or I, uh, or Marshall at a race meeting, as I know you do, do say hello, you know, do tell us who you are and what you do and what, what, you, what you love. And, and if we can do anything, you know, in the brief moments we've got to actually help enhance your enjoyment of a race meeting, you can be sure we will do it. Mm. Um, because we love to expand the reach of the sport. For now though, we're gonna call it a day um, because it's uh, something over two hours now. Marshall is gonna be cross. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, sorry, Marshall. I'm so sorry, Marshall. I'm gonna say thank you first and foremost to Daniel Summersgill for putting these questions together again so efficiently as he always does. Thanks particularly here to Stephen Kilby. Second time in just a few weeks, he's filled in with Marshall's travel schedule being um, really quite punishing at the moment. Uh, thanks, of course, as always, to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com for their continued support for the Marshall Fruit podcast, of which the Weekend Sports Cars is part. He's been Stephen Kilby. Somewhere in Indianapolis is Marshall Fruit. He'll be back next week. I've been Graham Goodwin. This has been the Week in Sports Cars, uh, and we will be back with you next week. <laughs>